Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hey everyone, welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today my guest is Andrea Saz and we are going to be talking about trauma, attachment and the body. So Andrea is a clinical psychotherapist in private practice in Sydney, specialising in the treatment of trauma. Her work is grounded in the conversational model of psychodynamic psychotherapy, somatic experiencing, and is informed by attachment theory and interpersonal neurobiology. She holds a Master of Science degree in medicine, psychotherapy, graduate diploma of psychology, a Bachelor of Counselling, and she is a somatic experiencing practitioner. Andrea is a reliable coder of the adult attachment interview and currently working on her PhD at the Brain and Mind Centre, collaborating in research combined with the Westmead Psychotherapy Program. Her passion is integrating her academic knowledge with the deeply known wisdom of the body and her own experiences as a practicing psychotherapist over the last 10 plus years. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, Jodi. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to talking to you. We've known each other since, look, I think it was probably from Mm. Clinton's Australian Counselling Facebook group many, many years ago. And I remember Mm. you posted something about going to a trauma conference and then I stalked you and thought, I'm going to come too. (laughs) (laughs) And so we met up down there for the first time, even though we're both from Sydney. And we um, had a great time down there with all of our sort of trauma gurus. And then we almost worked together and you had a lucky escape. We've been (laughs) friends and colleagues ever since. So I'm really looking forward to us talking. Obviously, we catch up and talk about these sort of things often. So welcome. Thank you. And I would also like to acknowledge the Gedigal and Birabirigal people who are the traditional custodians of this land where my office is at. And I would also like to pay my respect to elders past and present of the Eora Nation. And I extend that respect to other Indigenous peoples who may be listening to this podcast. Yeah, thank you. And actually, we are recording on Sorry Day. so That's right. Yeah. So could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this work? Well, I guess as... Many of us, was I was brought to this work as well because of my own personal experience of more of generational trauma, not really my own trauma. So my parents were born in the Second World War back in Hungary. So both sides of my family suffered some really major losses, not in the war itself, but other kind of circumstantial reasons. And I guess growing up in communist Hungary, that was an experience that was very restricting in a way especially that my family was, my family's heritage is an old aristocratic family 
and it was stripped off from everything. Mm. So the family was really kind of just able to hang on to their dignity. And there was lots of losses, as I said, and I learned so much from my grandparents to kind of have the value of family, integrity, education, and love for arts. And of course, all the generational traumas would have like a ripple effect. So my own experience of my parents being, my parents divorcing, and then having suicide in the family, and kind of attracting all the bonded people in my life, as we do, and then recognizing that how I kind of squeezed some value out for myself by looking after everyone else. So then I started to learn how to look after people in a way that actually supports me as well. And in that journey, of course, I learned a lot about myself. Yeah, absolutely. So when did you come to studying, like becoming a therapist? Was that your first career or is it sort of a second career? I mean, I know since I've known you, you, you're a bit like me. You're always doing lots of study. (laughs) So how did you come to be a therapist? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. So I had a couple of careers before this, mainly Mm -hmm. working in the film and television industry. And I started to study counseling when I was already here in Australia with my my kids. And I started to study in English. So I never really learned these things in Hungarian. I'm kind of relearning all these things again in my own language. But it wasn't a very conscious decision. It was something that was very instinctual, kind of a body-based response. I was walking on the street in somewhere in the city where Australian College of Applied Psychology was. And I just looked up and I saw the sign. So I Mm -hmm. thought, okay, that's interesting. I already studied a year in psychology and I didn't really enjoy that much. I didn't Mm -hmm. like statistics. So I went in there, I applied. They said, well, you have to send us a letter. Why you want to apply? And I said, well, give me some pen and paper and I write you the letter (laughs) here. So I did. (laughs) And that's how it's all started. Okay. Is that when they were at Wynyard Station near Wynyard, was it? That's right. Yes. Yeah. I remember. I remember. I think I did the family therapy training there probably about 12 Mm. years ago or something. I think they've moved now, but... So today we're going to talk about expertise is is in trauma and we're going to talk about trauma and attachment and depth psychotherapists have been using attachment theory since well into last century and Mm. but it's really had a big sort of resurgence over the last 10 or so years. I mean we have talked about attachment before on the podcast but I just in case someone's listening for the first time I always like and I like to get everyone's take on it as well. So would you from your perspective share what attachment is and I guess how how those early relational experiences impact our sense of self? Yes. So it's interesting because they used to believe that babies only need feeding, right? They don't actually need much else. That was a belief before Bobby and Mary Ainsworth, who first kind of came up with that with attachment and security theory. But basically, attachment is this deep and enduring emotional and co-regulating bond between caregivers and babies. So babies need this secure base to explore the world. So just being fed is not quite enough. We need that body-to-body interaction. 
and that sense of safety and that kind of gentle play as well between caregivers, those little responses and reliable contingent responses from our caregivers. And I guess through this process, we develop our self-agency and learn that our actions and intentions have an effect and can create responses from other people. And it creates this wiring of how we relate later on in life as well. And it becomes an enduring pattern in our life later on as well as adults. The attachment styles are enduring. So what they identified in children, that they have secure or autonomous way of relating. So children who can connect with their parents, use them as a secure base and then go off and explore. Mm. But they have this flexibility of attention. They can do kind of both, not at the same time, of course, but they can use the relationship to regulate. And then there are the avoidant infants who would kind of pretend that they don't need their caregiver and they don't really explore as much either. They are a little bit pretending that that relationship is not important. And then there is the resistant ambivalent in in the child attachment styles. And that's when kids kind of can't use the relationship because they're too focused on it. But when it's there they get a little bit and they don't they're not very able to explore because of that and then there is the disorganized or disoriented when there is no reliable contingent safety available for them so their kind of strategy becomes really quite disorganized and unable to explore and unable to find safety and then how it shows up when we become adults so secure adults kind of look like people who have a good sense of self they can relate freely and can ask for help as well as can be present for others but able to say no so people who have really kind of good boundaries good and Mm -hmm. flexible boundaries and secure people can express emotion they value emotion They're quite open about their emotions as well, but also contain, and they clearly value relationships. It's really nice to be around secure people. And just a note on these names. So if we say someone is insecure or not secure or dismissive and all that, this can sound really quite pejorative, but it's not meant that way. These are strategies for self-regulation and coping right so they are actually quite adaptive and maybe later on they become a little bit not that useful and because of that it's actually changeable so everyone can security through good relationships or therapy Mm -hmm. so the next one which was related to the avoidant presentation in children becomes dismissive in Adulthood, someone who is very overly independent, kind of people who need to do everything by themselves. And they have this view that others are not very helpful. And they worry about rejection. And they might feel shame when they view themselves as needy. They avoid or minimize feelings. And they really value independence, being strong, They value achievements, fun, and material success. 
And often dismissive attachment style people don't really have much memory of their childhood. Oh, really? Yeah. Just while we're on that mm. independence, I'll just sort of sort of segue into that a little bit. You and I have probably heard this many, many times, mm. but there might be someone out there saying, well, what's wrong with being independent? Well, we are tribal animals, so we do need each other. And if we have this sense of that we have to be overly independent and somehow shame is attached to being dependent or needing someone, that's not going to create a nice space for good relationships. Yeah. So I think that's how it kind of shows up. Yeah, absolutely. So the preoccupied, the, mm-hmm. the anxious, ambivalent baby becomes preoccupied. That's how they call it in adulthood. They often people feel like they really, really need people, but they feel very alone if they don't have someone deeply connected to them. But also they don't trust them and they don't trust them that they will be there. They really need them, but they don't trust that they're going to be there for them. They often feel very anxious, angry or blaming. So their feelings are really big and they often feel helpless and hopeless. Preoccupied attachment style people might have memories that are quite vivid and they often feel overwhelmed. The disorganized that can show up in serious mental health issues. Often the feeling is that they are not capable, they're not deserving, they really don't trust others, and they actually believe that other people will make their life. And the people who should be helpful, they often can feel for them as frightening or frightened. The feelings are being feeling dreadful, disconnected, confused, fragmented, and afraid. Yeah. Looking at trauma treatment over the last so many years, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is all about the body. So what's the body got to do with it? Well, we know from research now that these attachment styles and this way of relating, they have these kind of patterns in the nervous system as well. So in our nervous system, there are the self-protective processes of kind of primitive processes of fight, flight and freeze, Mm -hmm. right? And what trauma causes sometimes in very simple language, that sometimes these responses get stuck in a place of fight, flight or freeze. And it's a little bit like that secure people can move between these things easily without getting stuck. They can use their responses in a very flexible and open way. They don't often go into that freezy state that is the total overwhelm of the nervous system. But dismissive people would, or dismissive attachment style people, would have more of a sense of flight. They're often quite anxious, right? Mm. And they move away from feelings. From experience, I know that often dismissive people, because they value achievements and all that, they are the clients and people and family members who live in their heads, right? We Mm -hmm. often use that expression that they're not very connected to their feelings because they don't value feelings and they don't have that experience that that's actually useful to explore. And then the preoccupied, anxious or ambivalent style of relating is can show up in the nervous system and in behavior as really big feelings, really big flighty feelings, 
in a really kind of moving away from relationships, but then really intensely moving towards as well and having big fights, big angry energies coming up and often being kind of stuck in those places. And then if we get stuck in fight or flight, we end up in kind of freeze. And that's what disorganized can look like. Yeah, and I didn't ask you this before, but we've talked about fight, flight and freeze, I think maybe with embodied recovery, but um, just thinking too, what does that actually look like, fight, flight and freeze? You know, we talk about it often, but what, you know, for someone listening today, maybe they've never even heard those terms before. They might have heard mm. fight and flight, but a freeze mm. is a more recent one. But, I mean, what does that actually look like? So these responses are biologically wired normal autonomic responses right but they are primitive responses that happen through our brain and body right that kind of response that when you feel a big kind of i don't know something that sounds like a gunshot maybe Mm -hmm. you know you kind of pull up your shoulder and then your heart rate goes up and then you move forward to kind of run away If you, you know, you end up in a situation where you have protect like your child or something, Mm. you know, you get angry and then you notice that your arms become really energized and your jaw becomes a little bit tense and you might raise your voice for something and that would be a fight response, right? These are not kind of taught through processes. We don't decide these autonomic responses. They happen. This is our our nervous system way of protecting ourselves. And then the collapse or freeze response is when there is this immobilization and all these energies still going on in the body, but there is no way of escaping. And In trauma, that happens a lot. So if someone is being attacked or hurt in some ways, very often getting away would be, or fighting back, would be really, really dangerous. So therefore, the nervous system kind of takes us to this place of freeze or shutdown or immobilization Mm. and flushes our system with uh, chemicals that doesn't let us feel pain. Right. And while it's kind of a scary thought, it is a survival mechanism and it's a very smart survival mechanism. And I think trauma survivors especially gain a lot from learning about these responses because it takes away often the shame about them not being able to run away or fight back or something like that. Yeah, I'm thinking particularly in early childhood trauma too. You yes, know, when you use an yes. example of like a gunshot, but I'm I'm thinking about aggressive parenting or angry parents or if there's fighting at home. I mean, they're all quite sort of traumatizing experience to the child's nervous system, aren't they? That's right, exactly. And very often if that harm happens in the relationship, in that attachment relationship, there is no choice of kind of fighting or fleeing right so the nervous system automatically goes into that freezy state and that is often a pattern with people who have early relational or attachment traumas 
Yeah, I'm thinking too, because, you know, over the year, 20 years working with women, there's been a lot of people who have had sexual abuse and sexual assault mm. and things like that. And as you're talking, I know a lot of people feel like they wish or that they should have done something or they they mm. should have run or they should have even rung the police or, or whatever. But listening to you talking there, I mean, that's an obvious response right there, isn't it, mm. to something like yes. that happening too? Yes. So when we're talking about the body, I was going to ask you this later on, but I'm going to bring it forward a bit. So you're a depth psychotherapist as well, but we're talking about somatic psychotherapy, depth psychotherapy. So if we're looking at the body in psychotherapy, so someone's come to us for therapy, Mm -hmm. why is it important to use the body? And what does that actually look like in the room? Because I've got to say, I think 20 years ago, when I first started studying therapy, we did a weekend on somatic therapy. So I knew what it was from back then. But then when it started to pick up popularity, I'm thinking if I was wasn't a therapist. I don't even know if I I would know what that would be. And does it, Mm. you know, I think some people think, does that mean I get touched or, Mm. you know, so in terms of using the body in the room, Mm. why is it important and what does it look like? So I usually say that why is it important and why do we do it? And why is it good to do? Mm -hmm. I say, because it's handy. It's right there. (laughs) It would be silly to kind of leave it out right that's that's a really obvious answer yeah so for me it's kind of that was one reason why I really had to learn how to do that because for me it was just obvious it's right there why would Mm -hmm. we leave it out also knowing and learning so much about trauma we know that trauma has an effect on the body as well And we also know that our emotions and feelings, they happen in the body. They don't happen in our heads. Yeah. Right? We have heartaches. We have, you know, I don't know. I don't remember any other (laughs) metaphor. You know, when I... My, my history, you know, sort of before therapy, I, I used to spend a lot of time being very, very angry. So in the fight, I, I just lived mm. in fight. Like it's sort of that, you know, in your shoulders and it's hunched up around yes. your neck and yeah. everything's tight. And I went to thinking like pain in the neck, you know, when we say sort mm. of expressions like that, don't we? And when there's a painful feeling happen, my, my hand automatically goes to my either my solar plexus or my chest. So, yeah, we, we often do it without even realizing that we're doing it. Exactly. And you realizing that we're doing it and then doing something different will help, right? And also because we learn how to regulate our nervous system in relationship as well, mm. as we talked about before attachment and how that those early relationships kind of shape our sense of self and how we're going to be relating later on in life. What happens there as well is that co-regulation, nervous system to nervous system regulation. So when something goes wrong, we do need another to learn how to regulate our nervous system. And learning that doesn't happen just kind of talking about it. You actually have to do something. And the best, I think, is to to do together. And to answer your other question of how does this actually look like in the room, there are so many different somatic therapies. What I do is somatic experiencing. The basic um, tenets of somatic experiencing that these self-protective responses, these automatic self-protective responses as fight, flight and freeze might be thwarted. 
So kind of unfinished when something interrupts it. So trauma interrupts it. And as a somatic experiencing practitioner, I can help clients to learn first how to regulate and stay with uncomfortable feelings and then kind of decouple what they have maybe fear around those sensations and feelings and then process through the body, through movement, through visualization, those unfinished self-protective responses. Yeah. And so you said there's lots of there's lots of different somatic therapies. I guess while while you've brought that up, what what might they be? Mm. Just for people so, who might not know about that. There is sensory motor psychotherapy, there is Hakomi therapy. Recently I heard of a therapy called embodied imagination. And there in Europe there are many that are that I can't even get my head around. There is so many. Some of them based on kind of movement studies, some of them based on character studies. But the similarities, I guess, that they involve the body. So there is focusing where we focus on the sensations of the body. And then from that, we see what emerges. Yeah. And I'm thinking too, as you're talking, things like movement therapy and trauma-informed yoga and things like that too, there must be, well, I know that Carolyn Coston talked about incorporating yoga into her eating disorder recovery many, many years ago Mm. before, I guess, everyone was talking about somatic therapy. So there's there's lots Mm. of different ways, isn't there, to bring and express that through the body? Yes. And I think What I find really important is to teach my clients regulating themselves. Because when you have these responses and you are unfamiliar with them and you might be even afraid of them, then you have kind of a less sense of mastery over your life, right? But if you can learn how to have some mastery over your nervous system responses, it will become much easier. And as I said before, I think it's best to learn these things in the room together. Yes, when one isn't able to do that, that's when we start acting it out all over the place, trying to find other ways to soothe ourselves and to regulate, huh? That's right, exactly. Sex, drugs, alcohol, relationships, all sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you and I have had many a discussion about uh, somatic psychotherapy versus good old-fashioned talk therapy. (laughs) And, you know, I notice a lot in childhood emotional neglect and trauma groups for survivors and in therapist groups. There's a strong reaction and that one must almost bought talk therapy for somatic therapy. I think there's a massive confusion there around all that, but I'd love to have your take on it. And, you know, I'm trained to work holistically, so I'm I'm not a fan of splitting off um, parts or throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You've got depth training in both. What's your take on this sort of split that happens between, yeah, somatic and mm. talk? Yeah, I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Yeah. So one of my passion is to actually bring it all together, right? Bring yeah. the body and mind together and the soul of course yeah so bring it all together these are not separate entities right and i think there is a big split in the science there as well how we treat people there is a split 
but I guess that's a bigger conversation. Well, I do have a reaction to as well when, you know, somatic psychotherapists say, well, you have to, talk therapy doesn't work. And interestingly, what I observed lately is that when people say that, they actually really good talk therapists. Mm. So they might be trained and experts in some sort of body therapy or somatic psychotherapy, but they also fantastic master therapists yeah, yeah and what they say actually is totally aligned with what we do in the conversational model or what you might do in your depth therapy mm. right so they really know how to relate to people and how to relate to people who might have least really sensitive parts of themselves or really quite kind of stuck younger part of themselves and they recognize that and they can connect with those parts and attune to that right and they talk Mm -hmm. they don't sit there without talking so they know how to respond with words as well Mm -hmm. so I think what I agree with is that bad talk therapy doesn't work right yes and (laughs) (laughs) yeah either side when they say this or that doesn't work I don't think that's fair or that's well-informed or that's actually used from either side because also everyone is different. I had clients who would never do anything that was related to somatic psychotherapy or any other techniques that train that, but we have fantastic results with just just I'm saying just, but it's actually a very complex method of doing the conversational model. So Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. You have, you have. And it's interesting that you brought up the master therapist thing because I, this is pre-COVID when we could actually go to conferences and they weren't all online. I went to see Norman Deutsch and, you know, people Mm. like um, Bessel van der Kolk and, you know, Pat Ogden, all Mm. very, very, very good depth psychotherapists. That's right. And actually when they talked, I thought you are talking about psychoanalysis. You're talking about depth psychotherapy. What is going on? Why is everyone, because I noticed, and I'm not going to mention any names, but there's a few very obvious somatic psychotherapists who have put out infographics and things about you know ditching talk therapy and I think oh that's so it's just not correct for me anyway and then when I look at these other therapists I think but you're actually you are talk therapist so I I don't really get where that split's coming from but look it reminds me of training as a psycho spiritual psychotherapist and one of my favorite books I'm just going to turn around it's by Nelson and it's called healing the split and he talks about healing the split between science and spirituality so it's the same it's the same thing (laughs) yeah and I think we need to focus more on the connections because that's what happens in trauma right something gets disrupted something gets disconnected and what we need to do is to help those connections and facilitate that kind of pruning of those connections and I think we need to connect these things as well and we need as therapists and practitioners and scientists we need to connect with each other and we need to learn from each other absolutely and if anyone was to say I've got a client with trauma what's your go-to with trauma Mm. what would you like to say about that I don't think that there is one therapy that fits everyone first of all there is not one way of doing EMDR I know many fantastic EMDR therapists 
who are wonderful therapists and they really just warm and beautiful people. And I also have clients who had, had who had horrible reactions to EMDR and they left really unpacked and they had to come to me to kind of get some extra help. So I don't think that's true. And, you know, I often kind of say this with one of my colleagues that the psychotherapy war is like, you know, those ancient yeah, each yeah, other's yeah. villages and go that my Kung Fu is better than your Kung Fu. And then they have a little <laughs> spa and then they work out what's the best Kung Fu. And, you know, the best Kung Fu was actually the mixture of all the Kung Fu's together. Yeah. Then yeah. someone kind of put together a really holistic, really integrated system. Yeah. So I use EMDR sometimes. I'm also trained in brain spotting, which is also a wonderful way of treating trauma and neglect and all sorts of unmet needs. But I wouldn't use any of those just by themselves. I would use the other things that I know as well. And of course, I would bring in myself. Yeah, so they're a technique to use within a larger perspective. Obviously, I mean, you work like me, we're using the therapeutic relationship and the connection is the, for me, that's the gold sort of standard. And then there's lots of other techniques and things that we learn to use and to facilitate things. And there's some things I would do with some people and some things I would not do with other people. So Andy, I just wanted to say we've said EMDR and I'm just aware that we haven't really talked about EMDR on the podcast before. Would you tell people what it actually is? So EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing and it's a focused trauma treatment where we use either eye movements or sensory bilateral stimulation or auditory bilateral stimulation to move the traumatic memory into the past in a way. Mm -hmm. That's what we usually say, that process the trauma so it stays in the past, doesn't affect people. And it's quite common to use with sort of single incident trauma too, isn't it? Like, did it start with war vets, EMDR? Am I correct in that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the, I don't know how it started. I don't exactly remember, but I know that it's very common to use it. And recently, I think Prince Harry was talking about it as well. So I'm sure there will be an upsurge of talking about it. (laughs) I I guess just be mindful that things come and go and what was popular you know, 10 years ago is not popular now. or And I, I think mm. really as a consumer of therapy to really suss out what, what fits for you because I know what I often see in some in client-based Facebook groups, like people who are suffering, is that people mm. will recommend something, for example, EMDR, 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 and then someone will come in mm. and say, actually, that made me feel worse. So don't feel any kind of shame or anything if something isn't isn't working for you. Some things work for some people. Some things work for other people. That's right. And everyone deserves to get the right treatment for them. Exactly. And sometimes it does take looking around a little bit, I think. So I, I know myself mm. way back 25 years ago when I first sought treatment for my eating disorder, I went to the doctor and I'd sort of been and then I had to wait 12 weeks to see the therapist or something because it was through the NHS. And then the, I went back and mm. the doctor said, mm, so do you still have this uh, eating disorder thing? I thought, oh my <laughs> God, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and lucky for me, I didn't, I think the wait was so long 
on the NHS that I ended up finding my own wonderful therapist that I spent a very long time with. I think just keep looking until you find what works for you. So I agree. So we've been talking about the relationship and we've been talking about co-regulation and I guess just coming back to in the therapy. So what do I want to say about why is it so important? Why is the relationship and connection and the co-regulation, why is that so important? I guess because kind of going back what we said about attachment theory, that that relational patterning in us happens really early on and our way of relating can then later on can cause quite a bit of problems in our lives or, you know, missing out on things, I guess. Mm -hmm. And in the therapeutic relationship, if it's a good fit, you can rewire that patterning in you. So you can become much more secure in yourself. And um, that's what we call to kind of move to earn security and, through that relationship, you will learn and your system will learn how to relate in this free, freer and more secure way. And I guess what does that mean for people who come to us with addiction, anxiety, depression, eating disorders? So if, mm. they, if they learn to, if, if, if they're able to shift that, what does that mean for their recovery? Well, kind of internalizing that supportive relationship, they will be able to regulate themselves more so they wouldn't need to reach for drugs and alcohol or eating behaviors. They will feel much more of a sense of value because when you have someone there for you who really values your experience and pays attention to it and really gives value to all of you, that's a really regulating thing yeah you know you build self-esteem and self-love through that yeah and these are all the things that 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 we missed out on you know yes exactly so I guess in a way you know for people who might be thinking about therapy and who have had trauma and you know suffering with one of the symptoms that we've been talking about how long do you typically Mm. work with people because I know when people go you and I both work outside of the Medicare system. For those listening mm. overseas, it might be the NHS or, you know, in the States, a lot of people use their insurance for therapy. Typically, it's time limited when someone goes to a psychologist through the Medicare system and they typically get between, what, 6, 10, I think maybe 20 sessions a year, partly covered by Medicare. But if you're, you know, mm. if you're working with someone in private practice, what does that typically look like in terms of how often do people come, how long do you normally work? Work with people I usually meet people and we have kind of we form an understanding of a mutual understanding of what's needed right and then mm-hmm. we agree on how we're going to work together there are times when I work in set sessions to let's say 20 sessions and then we might work on one goal in a yep. way yeah not on the cognitive therapeutic way but on a goal of I have relationship issues I always feel this way or that way in a relationship and then we would intensively focus on that working on that in the therapeutic relationship so all those things would show up in the room and then we would kind of unpack that together but that that's rare for me to work in a shorter term Mm. so generally I work long term so I usually say to people that 
okay, if we're going to work on these early traumatic experiences, I think what we need is around a year or a year and a half. And then we kind of check in to see where we are at then. But for that time, they would have to commit for weekly therapy once a week. I used to do twice a week therapy when I was doing my master's degree. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, no one can actually afford that anymore. But it had wonderful results. That would be lovely if that was possible to do. And then we, we kind of keep that going and work in the relationship, working with the body, using somatic experiencing, the conversational model mainly. And then if something comes up that really needs some focused attention and I feel like that brain spotting would be useful, then I do that as well. Great. And I haven't, I didn't ask you about this beforehand. And I guess this one's more for sort of therapists listening, but I know Mm. that I often mention your name without you knowing this, um, that my colleague has trained. (laughs) Thank you. um, (laughs) But the recent training that you've been doing at Sydney Uni in trauma and is it psychodynamic psychotherapy? Was it your master's that you did? Yeah, in the Westmead Psychotherapy Program. Oh, it is part of that. I see, I see. Yes. What is that like as a training program? Would you recommend it to therapists who are listening today? Yes, I'm on the faculty now as an associate, so I would definitely recommend it. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I recently become an associate clinical lecturer there. It's a very well put together, very passionate bunch of teachers, faculty Mm. members. Mm. It's based on Russell Mears and Robert Hobson's work. Uh It's beautiful work and it's a very good training program, really quite intense, but I think that's needed. Yeah, absolutely. And oh, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations. I didn't know that. So that's that's great. Thank you. So how often are you teaching? Thursdays, attending to the university and I'm mainly you know, participate in some seminars yeah. uh, and I do supervision. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad I asked about that. That's great because I know, you know, obviously this is aimed at women and trauma, but, you know, obviously a lot of therapists are um, listening too. And I know in, look, in Australia in general, I, having trained in Europe, in the UK, mm. I, good training here is hard to find, I think, in terms of being sort of proper mm. psychotherapy. So it's always good to know where to send people. So I'm glad yeah. I asked. Yeah, this is definitely one of the best courses in Australia I can honestly say that great that's really good to know Mm. our time is coming to an end where do people find you I know you're obviously pretty booked out and whatever else but where do people Mm. find you well people find me on bravetherapy.com that's my website they can sign up to my newsletters Mm -hmm. to the website uh, and then they would get information about my special offerings sometimes I run workshops for practitioners based on Brene Brown's work the daring way and I also do the adult attachment interview and that's something what I've been doing for therapists because that's a very good and validated way of kind of checking our attachment state of minds yeah which can be very useful when you are a therapist it also can be useful with clients but it's quite a complicated and expensive um, well i see you know 
I think it's important, you know, when you're talking about therapists and I guess what Andrea is saying about that is good therapists would have had their own therapy and, and whatever else. But I guess it depends on the sort of therapy you've had in terms of knowing what your own attachment have to, to, to have that for yourself and to know how you're relating to the client is really important. Yes, and then kind of learning if there are any blind spots still there, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so seeking supervision with someone like you is also good too then. Yeah, I do offer supervision. (laughs) And that's what I was going to say. So we didn't really talk about it today, but you were the first person trained by Brene Brown in Australia, I I think. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Yeah. And do you run um, any Brene training for clients anymore or is it mostly for therapists? Not right now because I planned to do some online and then it just didn't feel right. Okay. So when I can have people in my office again, which is a really nice and big office, so I could have a few people in there, then I will think about it again. I really love running those workshops, yeah. Um, but I love doing them in face-to-face. Yeah, just for the record, I went to one of your workshops many years ago and uh, really, really enjoyed that. So, and and went as a participant. So, yeah, good. And also yeah. head over to your blog. I know that you're a good little blog writer over there. So, um, lots, lots of useful. <laughs> Thank you. Lots of useful. Learned a lot from you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So there's lots of resources there and I always find your newsletter interesting and um, whatever else. And you're in Bondi, aren't you, in terms of your practice, but you're also working online? Bondi Junction, uh, yes, and I do work online as well. Yes, that's right. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Jodi. That was fantastic. For the show notes, go to thesoulcentre.online forward slash soul sessions 36 treating trauma thanks for listening and bye for now thank you for listening to the soul sessions podcast loved this episode head over to itunes to subscribe rate and leave a review it's very much appreciated thank you to learn more about how you can befriend your body feelings mind and soul get jody's free 65 page ebook at the soul until next time